When I got deeper into the passage that is uh, ours this morning, I sort of regretted choosing to preach from 2 Corinthians. I read it and read it again and then began to study it almost word by word. And well into my study, had this feeling that there's really not a whole bunch there. And so I was a little bit relieved this morning when the power was out. And a bit dismayed when the power came back on. I have no excuse in the lack of amplification. Nevertheless, this is God's word for us today. And I think if we pay careful attention, he will speak to us and we will learn lessons for life. So the text is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. And I'll read through the fourth verse of chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 1.12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything that you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. 
I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. God's word for us today. Let us pray that we would understand and obey. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you ever read someone else's mail? You just did. It's easy to forget that most of the New Testament is someone else's mail. Letters, correspondence from the writer to the original readers. In this case, from the Apostle Paul to Christians in the church that he founded in the city of Corinth. And like all letters, these letters in the New Testament arise out of specific situations and reflect specific relationships that, while very clear to the writer and the original readers, are hidden to us by the passage of time and by the distance of language and culture, hidden from us who come afterward to read them. This is someone else's mail. The task of the Bible student is to try to reconstruct the situation out of which these letters were written, to try to reconstruct the relationships that gave rise to the communication, to understand those relationships between the writer and the readers, to make educated guesses about what was going on and what the writer was referring to with a particular word or a particular phrase that he used. Uh, To put it in terms of present-day communication technology, a New Testament letter is just part of a thread of a conversation, of the back-and-forth correspondence between, in this case, the writer Paul and the recipients, the church at Corinth. We don't have all the other parts of that thread. We don't know what has gone on previously. We don't know previous communications between Paul and the Corinthians. We can only try to figure them out from what we have here and from what we know about Paul and his experience with the Corinthians in the book of Acts and in that other letter we have in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. But this much is clear. Paul is very much on the defensive in 2 Corinthians. As I said last week, this is perhaps the most personal of all of Paul's letters. Here we see not only what Paul thinks, but what he feels. This letter is full of emotion and passion. He is defending himself against attacks that have been made on his character, his motives, his trustworthiness, his purposes, his very person. And now in writing to them, he pulls out all the stops. He throws himself both mind and heart wholly into the writing of this defense. And we can deduce the shape of what he is accused of by what he says in defending himself. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, We do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. Kind of a strange thing to find in the first part of a letter. We do not write you anything you cannot read 
or understand. Apparently, one of the charges against Paul was that he purposely wrote in a confusing manner. One of the things being said about Paul and his co-workers Silas and Timothy was that they spoke and wrote in secret codes and hidden meanings that the Corinthians could hardly understand. That rather than making the issues and, and doctrines and God's instructions clear and easily understood, Paul's writing was confused and confusing. It was intended to complicate and to mystify. But Paul declares plainly in verse 13 here that that was not the case. We didn't write anything you cannot understand. No reading between the lines or cracking of the code or solving of the puzzle was necessary to make sense of what Paul and his co-workers were saying. And closely connected with that charge was the accusation of being fickle, of being wishy-washy, indecisive, saying one thing one time and another another time, or saying one thing and then doing another. And Paul feels the need to reiterate his now-abandoned plans for visiting Corinth. He needs to tell them what he intended to do and why he did not do it. In verses 15 and 16, he says, in effect, At first I intended to visit you twice, once on my way north through Greece, on my way to Macedonia, and a second time on my way south from Macedonia as I made my way back through Greece to Judea. And when he didn't return to Corinth, his critics in Corinth jumped on this, this change of plans. And they had their gotcha moment. They made a mountain out of this molehill. They said that his change of plans revealed a deep character flaw that disqualified Paul from being the respected, authoritative apostle of Jesus Christ. They said, see what kind of person Paul is. He promised to visit a second time, and where is he? He, he didn't show up. And so Paul explains the reason for his change of plans. Beginning in verse 23 and continuing into the first verses of chapter 2, he says it was to spare the Corinthians further pain that he did not visit them again. He swears in verse 23 a solemn oath. He says, as God is my witness, there's no higher oath than he could take. As God is my witness, I did not visit you a second time in order to spare you. And Paul calls this possible second visit another painful visit indicating that the first visit with the Corinthians had been full of pain for him and especially for them. And he knew that at this time another visit would bring further grief to them because he was on a mission from God to correct them and to discipline them, and he found no joy in playing that role of the disciplinarian. His change of plans enabled his detractors in Corinth to say, look at what kind of decision maker he is. Now, a truly spiritual person, a real good leader, would not decide one thing and then do another. Paul talks out of both sides of his mouth. He says yes when he says no. You can't trust him. He's a lightweight, spiritually speaking. He makes his plans in a worldly manner. God never changes his mind. 
Paul would not have if he were truly God's man. That's the charge against Paul. That's what he's defending himself against in these verses. And to that, Paul says, you yourselves saw how we were among you. You saw how we acted. You heard the message we delivered when we were with you. You know very well it wasn't sometimes yes and sometimes no. It wasn't yes and no at the same time. It was yes. Just like God's action in Jesus Christ, the core of our message is always yes. Not yes, yes, or no, no. Not yes and no, but yes. Lurking in the shadows of these allegations of flawed character and on spirituality is the mischaracterization of the kind of relationship that Paul desired to have with the Corinthians. He did not intend to lord it over them. It says in verse 24, Paul is declaring that he does not lord it over them in their faith. He doesn't relish the role of authoritarian. He doesn't always need to be in charge of them. He's not on a power trip. He's not a control freak. He is not there to manipulate and dominate them. That's not his aim. Paul's opponents have committed what has been called a suicide. They have jumped to conclusions about Paul's person and character and motives, and they've tried to lead others to the same conclusions. They assumed that Paul was motivated by this desire to lord it over them, and the intended victim of this assumicide was Paul's reputation and influence in the Corinthian church. Now, I dare say that we recognize readily this crime of a suicide because we committed ourselves and others committed on us, don't they? Don't you? A suicide. We are too quick to assign motivations to other people's actions, to say, I know why he did this or I know why she did that. We don't really know. We're just assuming. He didn't return my phone call. He must be mad at me. She did not invite me to that party. She thinks she's better than me. The truth is we are all terrible at determining why other people do what they do. And we draw the wrong character-killing conclusions from the scantiest of evidence. Paul's critics there in Corinth thought they had him pegged. They thought they had him all figured out as an egotistical, domineering, indecisive, manipulative, would-be leader. They assume. It's clear from the last verses of chapter 1 and the first verses of chapter 2 that less than worthy motives had been assigned to Paul. That's why Paul takes such pains to make it clear that his concern is for their joy and their spiritual well-being. That it's not about him, except as is about his passion for truth and his compassion for his fellow believers in Corinth. He's not motivated by self-interest. Rather, he's motivated by a God-given desire 
to see the gospel, the good news in Jesus Christ, presented and understood clearly and accepted and then transmitted to others. He's interested in seeing that the Corinthians remain firmly rooted in the good news that he and Silas and Timothy had delivered to them. All that Paul has done, all that he has said and written was motivated by his love for them. The attacks on Paul's credibility and integrity originated with teachers who wanted to replace Paul in his position with the Corinthian Christians. These teachers had apparently come to Corinth after Paul and Silas and Timothy had left, and and they wanted what the Corinthian church was giving to Paul. They wanted the esteem, the status that Paul had from the Corinthians. They wanted to be regarded as the authorities in the place of Paul. They sought to, to climb higher in prestige and authority by pulling Paul down. But Paul was not about to allow them to do this. And so throughout 2 Corinthians, this letter we have in front of us, we see Paul defending himself, clearing his name, and and reestablishing his reputation mattered a great deal to him. I think it mattered to him because of three things. First, there was his personal investment in the Corinthian church. He was its founder. He is the one who brought the good news to Corinth. He had spent 18 months, a year and a half there, calling the people of Corinth to faith and establishing that church. So there is that personal investment. And second, he cared so much because of his love for the Corinthians, a love that grew out of sharing intense experiences of teaching and persuading others and and even being dragged into court with the Corinthians. You can read about it in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. And it mattered to Paul, thirdly, because of his passion for communicating the truth about Jesus. He knew that in the hands and in the mouths of these teachers who had come later to the scene, he knew that the message was being distorted by those who were trying to discredit him. So notice how Paul defends himself as the passage unfolds. First, he appeals to his own conscience. He tells the Corinthians that he has examined his own conscience in regard to how he has conducted himself in his relations with them. He has examined his own conscience in terms of what he has said and what he has written, and that his own conscience does not condemn him. But rather, his conscience testifies to the holiness and godly sincerity with which he has acted and spoken. His conscience... Now, don't think of the Christian's conscience as a Jiminy Cricket kind of thing. You know, Jiminy Cricket, a little being perched on your shoulder, speaking into your ear when you have done or are about to do something wrong. That's not the Christian conscience. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your conscience is the very Spirit of God whom you possess from the very moment that you trust Jesus. God, by his Spirit, comes to dwell in your person, in your life. 
And it is that spirit, with a capital S, who searches all things of your life, under whose scrutiny we constantly are. So Paul is saying, as the Spirit of God himself speaks with my spirit about what I have done, about my attitudes, my actions, my words, I find no condemnation. Now that's a very solemn assertion. Paul is saying, I've checked with God, and he says I'm okay. And nothing Paul would say lightly is this assertion. He takes it very very seriously. As God himself communicates with my spirit about what I have done and what I have said, I find no condemnation. So that's one way he defends himself. The second way is by explaining his actions and his motives. What he's done and why he's done it. He just lays it out. He says, this is what I did, and here's why I did it. It's as if he is saying, look, my my life is an open book. Here it is spread out before you. Come and read it. He invites those who would criticize his every action and word to take an even closer look at him. He invites them to examine his actions and motives. He explains himself. And the third part of his defense is reminding them of the motivation for what he has done. Not just what he has done, but why he has done it. What he has done, he has done not for himself, but for God and for them. His purpose in all his dealings with the Corinthians was not to make a name for himself or establish himself as the supreme controller of them or to satisfy some need of his ego to have the final say. His goal was to serve Christ and to accomplish the purpose that Christ had for that church there in Corinth. And I must say that over the years, in ministry to people and with people, I found that appeal to motivation to be very helpful in settling disputes and quieting arguments that people have with me or with other church leaders. I found myself saying, and some of you have heard me say it, let's try to remember here, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. We have no ulterior motive here. I often say we're just trying to do something good for Jesus. Just trying to do something good for Jesus. So to defend himself, Paul appeals to his true motivation. So what's the application of the scripture? What do we do with it? So what? Is it merely some words that are stuck back there long ago and far, far away? Or does it have some relevance to us who would follow Christ today? Well, here are some possible applications for you to consider. The first has to do with what happened to Paul's reputation in his absence from the Corinthians. It warns us to be very careful about criticizing or speaking ill or tearing down someone who has been in leadership. It warns us against setting ourselves up as critics and judges of one another. Don't attempt to build yourself up 
by tearing another down. The second application concerns the motives of other people. And about this, I just want to say this. We don't know. We're committing a suicide all the time. We're not that smart. We don't know why people do what they do. So don't commit a suicide by thinking you know why others do what they do or say what they say. You flat out don't. And thirdly, this passage may say something about how to defend yourself when you are misunderstood, when your reputation is damaged, when you are criticized, when your motives are called into question. Paul provides a great example. Notice that he did not fly into a rage. He did not mount this fury of of anger and write it to burn and scathe the Corinthian wrongdoers. He did not go on the counterattack. But neither did he wither and uh, fail to respond to those who criticized him. Rather, he just calmly checked his Holy Spirit-informed conscience. He checked it out with God. And then he explained himself to his critics calmly, reasonably, this is what I did and why I did it. And then he reminded them of his motivation in being who he was and doing what he did. He told them whatever he had done, he had done it for love. God's word for us today. In my life and in your life, let God's word be so.